You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, ChristianHumanist.org. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining another episode of the Sectarian Review podcast. Uh, we are. This is the first episode in what I'm going to be calling the Bunker Tapes. Uh, I've got, uh, I'm because of what's going on with the COVID-19 virus, I, a lot of people who work in higher ed and education in general are being sequestered at home and we're doing stuff remotely. So I have this sort of... Uh, provisional remote setup in my basement so if you hear some noise from my family just kind of bear with that I'll try to uh, keep it to a minimum if I can but uh, um, I want to kind of go on um, anyway and as it happens I think the topics that um, I have chosen to talk about here today are um, all weirdly relevant in in their own ways to what's going on so uh, let me just kind of jump right into it my first episode that I want to record here is about this little awesome short story um, called The Pagan Rabbi by Cynthia O. Which is something I've I've read years ago for the first time, and then uh, revisited it here lately. And I think, well, my my guest today is uh, C. Derek Varn. Uh, Derek, how are you doing? I'm okay. Good, good. Um, yeah, we'll we'll get into uh, the the details of what's going on in our lives later on, but. Um, the uh, I think the idea for this show came up in our Serious Man episode. The movie is the, it did, yeah. Okay, and and uh, and so I had you uh, pick up this book and read it. And so um, I want to spend some time talking about it. It's a, a I sent the Ozick is a, a truly great writer. I think is under underappreciated in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, and I think that uh, this is a great time for us to revisit something. If you haven't read it, it's a, about a thirty-five page short story. It isn't uh, too long. It's full of magical realism and uh jewish uh philosophy and, and theology and and it's uh it's a fascinating little story but uh, what are your thoughts uh just initially is it full of magical realism i mean one of the things about the story is there's plausible deniability to the magical realist elements of it okay um so that's something we'll have to talk about i mean there's a lot going on here and a whole lot that i think if you're coming out of the generation that that Ozick is coming from, there there's there's a lot to dig into. Um, it's delightfully well written, and honestly, um, it's in her collected stories, which is good. But that's not where I found it. I actually picked up the yeah, that's the one I have. <laughs> the uh, the original, well, or the second printing or something. But even this, like it was last printed. My version was last printed in the seventies. Yeah, for whatever whatever reason, Cynthia Ozick um, never got the. Here's the look at my great cover. This is great radio, I know, but uh, I have this awesome little uh, illustration of the pagan rabbi. Yeah, uh, yours is uh, also from the seventies, but newer than mine. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's never gotten the. I don't know. Like the gravitas in the mid twentieth century, Jewish American writers like dominated American fiction. People like Philip Roth and Saul Bellow, um, Norman Mailer, Bernard Malamud, and and I think not until after Ozick's era were women kind of 
uh, as appreciated in that group. Uh, and so for whatever reason, Cynthia Ozick, I think, is slightly younger than Philip Roth. I think she's sort of about a half generation. Yeah, she's like a half generation behind Roth. Um, and so I, I, for whatever reason, I feel like she was always left out of this conversation. And not only as a writer of fiction, but as an essayist. She's like a, a spectacular essayist. And uh, and for me, she actually studied under Lionel Trilling. She had a class with Lionel Trilling. <laughs> and, uh, and and so it was uh, like she has a lot of really um, – she has a really great essay about, about him, actually. And it's kind of a fascinating uh, thing for me to read because I'm interested in Trilling. But, yeah, I feel like uh, for whatever reason – her work has not been received with the the enthusiasm that it deserves to be. Well, I think there's a lot going on to maybe why. Um, one, she even even for her generation, she started publishing in the '60s, but she was already like in her approaching her in her '40s when like her most famous work was written. Um, so she was a late bloomer. And she was ambivalent. I mean, that's going to come out when we talk about this particular story. She was ambivalent about the role of being an artist as a Jewish woman. Yeah. Yeah, there, um, there was some sort of conflict with her in be, doing imaginative art as some sort of competition with God, kind of, right? Right. Well, it's, it, it's kind of, in her mind, dangerously close to idolatry. Mm-hmm. Which is a subtext for the story, I think, actually. It's part of what she's struggling through. But the other thing is the Jewish America she's writing about is not the Reformed Jewish America or the shuttle Jewish America um, that we know. It's not Roth or, or you know, Malmute or any of those guys. It's, it's this transitionary period that really is, and I think I think it's interesting that this story came to mind immediately um, when we were talking about a serious man, because when I read this, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Although I think this is actually a far deeper text oh. than a serious man is. Yeah, like, I, would, I would think so too. Yeah, a lot of credit. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, she's uh, um, and and she's Orthodox, right? And so she's uh, she's still. Um, takes the religion much more seriously, I think, than most um, creative artists do. <laughs> and I think that that's probably another reason that she's uh, sort of like people don't exactly know what to do with her. But she's a kind of Orthodox that that has fallen out of favor even in the Orthodox community. So I don't know what – I mean I know you study Jewish literature. It's sort of a specialty of yours. But I don't know what you know about modern Jewish culture. Uh, not uh, Not as much as I should probably. But the Hasidim and the Harari, which are the which are which are the um, the more extreme forms of Jewish Orthodoxy, which we might call fundamentalist or whatever, yeah, um, have been the trend of the Orthodox in the same way that say fundamentalism and evangelicism, whatever that even is, yeah, has been the trend of Christians, um, and then later on, you know, this kind of neo traditionalism going back to Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Church when people got frustrated with, you know, fundamentalism. Um, she represents a strain of sort of modern orthodoxy or conservatox. You know, conservative Judaism is actually not conservative by Jewish standards. It's in the liberal Jewish category. But, but the kind of... Um, 
not as ritually – I mean, they're concerned about ritual. They're concerned about maintaining culture. They're concerned about law, but they're not rejecting the modern world. Um, and that's like the struggle that she, that she sees here. I mean, and you have to – so we should actually describe the story. Yeah. Because the framing of the story is interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's – you know, so basically the story of not one, but two apostate rabbis, their fathers yeah, and their wives. Yeah, um, a lot of doubling going on in here. Yeah, for sure. So the narrator is not the pagan rabbi. The narrator is his confidant um, and bookseller who has a famous um, Rebbe of a, fa- of a father who is notoriously strict and losing his voice but won't speak to him because he drops out of, he drops out of uh, yeshiva mm-hmm. or seminary and um, marries a, a woman he calls a Puritan. Yeah. <laughs> marries, marries a Protestant New Englander. Yeah. Um. And the marriage doesn't go well, so he spends the rest of his life sort of alone. Um, the other, the pagan rabbi, his friend Isaac, has a less prestigious rabbi father, who's always in competition with his father, um, marries a very orthodox woman. Yeah. But without a family, because she by almost a miracle survives was born was born in the death camps and was about to be thrown into the the electric fence when um it's not clear if it's the, the Russian or the American army actually I'm assuming it's the American but it, we don't know right breaks that camp and she is raised as an orphan in America yeah um and you have all that, you know, and in and, and one sense, um, you can't have a more Jewish person. And yet, that character, uh, uh, Shindel, Shindel, yeah. is, um, is fa- I think that's the character we're going to have to, like, parse out the most. She's, she's, she's the most fascinating one to me. Um, and then you have... Isaac, who um, is a, um, a Talmud Hakim, a, a, like a prestigious Talmud scholar. Yeah. And a very good one. Professor of Mishnaic studies, I believe, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, um, he, you know, he starts off writing responsa. For those of you who don't know, that is how Jewish legal rulings are, are done, is the um, legal conversations between rabbis. Um, there is not a central scholar, I mean, a central authority other than those conversations on the law. Um, and if you know how the Talmud works, the Mishnah is the core of the Talmud, which is itself the, what, fourth or fifth century commentary on, on Deuteronomy and Leviticus. Um, the Talmud is commentary on that. Um, all the laws come from, you know, the... Uh, the Gematria portion of that, and they actually those those get codified into things later. Um, and 
so that's where modern rabbinic Judaism comes from. But to be a Mishnah, to be a Mishnah scholar is like to be the scholar of like the heart of all that. Yeah. It's not just like I'm studying the Talmud. I'm studying the heart of the Talmud. I'm studying the heart of rabbinic Judaism and of Orthodox Judaism. Um, and so what's fascinating about about this to me is that that culture is totally infused in this. But you have for the fact that the – one of the things that's interesting about Shindal is she she is less repulsed by the atheist – apostate rabbi than by her pagan husband like much less repulsed yeah she finds them more of a curiosity right so she asks him at one point and the narrator is unnamed in this um mm -hmm. we just know that he's sort of a, a peer of isaac kornfeld um who's the uh, the pagan rabbi um and so uh she asks him what it was like being married to those people right it was she's almost it's almost like a curiosity about um you know the goyim right and so the mm -hmm. uh uh what what is uh, really truly horrifying is her own husband's turning away from the law for paganism for basically yeah. and i guess to get into what he actually does the the story opens um with isaac cornfeld's um su or the the narrator on his way in the aftermath of isaac's suicide he hangs himself from a tree uh in some like smutty little park uh somewhere in brooklyn i assume and yeah it's a park outside brooklyn it's and we say smutty like it's right by the sewage dumps yeah the, like you know it feels of 70s grossness yeah but there's so much symbolism in hanging yourself from a tree with a prayer shawl with a prayer shawl yeah i mean so they try they, they bury him and you know there's all this talk about there's all this benefit of the doubt, which itself is Talmudic, right? One of the things about now they're not going to bury you're not going to bury a suicide in consecrated bounds, but you're actually supposed to try to figure out a way to say that it wasn't a suicide or an apostasy. If you can, you can. Yeah. But one of the things that's interesting about Jewish law is, other than apostatizing to say Christianity or Islam. Okay, that's bad. It's one of the few things that will get you in a whole lot of trouble. Um, apostatizing to to paganism, I couldn't think of anything. Like, So he actually, like, his death is not just it's, – it's a scandal, but it's a scandal that can kind of in – the, in the world of the – you know, in the world of the 60s, they probably could have papered over it a little bit. Yeah. But – when you find out the context for it, like the only thing it would have been worse if you'd been like drinking blood. I yeah. mean, like, <laughs> like, like it, it's, it's such a blasphemous act from the point of view of it. And yet when you read his, read that final letter, which we'll have to go into. Um, and also what all's going on there? Because one of the things about the unnamed narrator is, he thinks he's going over the find out about Isaac, but he also thinks maybe he's going to try to seduce his widowing wife, um, uh, Stindon. But he ends up kind of horrified by her. Yeah. Um, by her, I think, well, I guess we can 
what it is about her that's horrifying, I guess, is a question um, that we can get to. But I mean, is it her utter commitment to orthodoxy that uh, that that he finds repulsive? I don't I don't know. I don't think so. I, I, I actually don't think that's it. I think there's one of the things that she points out to him is there's a flip side to orthodoxy that he doesn't understand. And she she does point it out to him, and it's something that I think a lot of people who do, who don't deal with religious people very much are surprised by. Even though he was he de- clearly dealt with religious people, but he didn't really get it. Is he was talking about you know her skepticism because she was more to him she was more skeptical than he was about not just Isaac but about maybe God. Yeah. And what she says to him is like, why do you think we have these fences of law? Because we are actually more skeptical. We have more doubt than you do. Yeah. Like, our faith is based on maintaining this law because we have so much doubt. And and when you think about the context of her birth, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, like, you know, the, the for many ways, the Shoah is like the, the delegitimization for a lot of people of Orthodox Jewism from the Jewish perspective. Um, and, and that in some ways is why, for example, in like the modern Jewish world, atheism is not nearly is not nearly as big a deal as apostasy. Like yeah. there are atheist rabbis. Like that's not like if this was the atheist rabbi, that wouldn't even like people wouldn't bat an eyelash at that. It's the pagan rabbi element of it. Yeah. And, and that sort of rejection of Jewishness, but. The world of philosophy and literature is also not painted as a bad, mm-hmm. and like, um, so so I'm not sure he's horrified by her clinging to orthodoxy as much as her pitilessness. Yeah, and to read the the section here, this is so as he's kind of going through the letter and the letter is private, right? That was in his pocket and the police mm-hmm. gave it to her. So I don't know that the rest of the community knows this fact of Isaac's apostasy. No, it, it's right? explicitly said that they don't. Yeah. And, and so like, this is a secret basically that they, they know that no one else knows. And, um, and, uh, and so she, he says to her, that's an atheist statement or no, she, she says, I'm sorry, he says to her, Scheindel, for a woman so pious, you're a great skeptic. And she, she responds, an atheist, an atheist statement. The more piety, the more skepticism. A, re- a religious man comprehends this. Uh, superfluidity, excess of custom, and superstition would climb like a choking vine on the fence of the law if skepticism didn't, did not continually hack them away to make freedom for pure, for purity. Um, and, and that's exactly what you're getting at there in this, uh, in this section of her personality. Right. And it's kind of, it's almost, uh, anachronistic to people who think about religion in a certain way. Right. And there, there are things about, Orpha, there are slights of the Jewish world actually, like that, that are being made here that are inter-Orthodox conflicts. Okay. <laughs> Um, so like the Sedea gone and all that, what that's a slide at is, um, his reading materials and both their reading materials and all this is that it's, um, a slide at, um, uh, stuff like, um, uh, Kabbalah. 
uh-huh. and uh, Markaba mysticism and stuff like that. Okay. Which, so some of the other yeah. Madonna the adopts other, later, right? <laughs> some of the other cited fig, uh, figures are things that like, and this is big in like the Haradi and stuff, and so all these like hyper, you know, hyper kind of what we would consider superstitious, um, but would be like um, Rebbe traditions that emerged in the 17th century. And this is also kind of taking a stab against that too. So, I mean, one of the things about this is if, um, you know, the Jewish world at all, like there's a lot of stuff that I don't think non-Jewish readers are going to pick up. Yeah. Um, Which is probably also a reason why Ozick has never received the acclaim i mean she doesn't have crossover appeal i suppose you could say uh, like someone like philip roth might right and so uh, yeah because yeah, she's writing for a, a very particular audience so yeah um and so yeah so what happens what they find out that the, that the rabbi cornfield was doing and this is sort of like so he there's a this discussion between the narrator's father was like a great rabbi. Isaac's father was sort of a, a mediocre rabbi, like uh, in terms right. of, of learnedness, right? Their children swap positions. Like, so Isaac becomes like the greater child of the father. And then um, the narrator is sort of lesser than his father. And he ends up leaving. But Isaac actually keeps on implying that the narrator isn't as far off as he thinks. Yeah. Like, um. Which is which is interesting. The only time Isaac shows any judgment of him, and he won't, and this is also interesting because he won't speak ill of her, uh-huh. is when the narrator marries a goy, and you don't, but he doesn't like, you know, he doesn't do the public. Like you're supposed to publicly mourn him as dead. He's not because their children will be outside of the Jewish people. That's the offense. Yeah. Um. It's not just like. It's not just that he's apostatizing or whatever. He's not really even doing that. It's more like, like from the from the Orthodox perspective, their children aren't Jews, so you lost, you lost, um, you know, future Jews to the world. But it's violence against against Jews, right? Right. Yeah. But um, what what's interesting to you know, there's a couple other interesting things going on. For example, um. Isaac only has daughters. Yeah, seven. And so one of the things about like how many children you speak, like like birth control is not totally forbidden in Judaism, um, although Orthodox generally do frown on it. But one of the things about about um, how many children you're supposed to have is if you have one male and one female, you you're considered you've met your you're met you've met your mitzvah. All right, you've replaced yourself. Mm. Um, but if you have like eight daughters you're supposed to continue trying until you have a son um and vice versa actually you're supposed to like both both parties are at least supposed to replace themselves Mm -hmm. at least um now that's a conservative ruling i actually don't know how all the orthodox rule on that but but so that's part there's all kinds of things that are becoming up problems and what's interesting is the unnamed narrator actually still kind of takes a Jewish answer. He's just kind of like evolving into what we would consider like re- like secular reform Judaism. Like, oh, your daughters could be just as as good. And and clearly, one of the things that's interesting about Isaac is that um, he doesn't have contempt for women. Yeah. Like at all, you don't see any evidence of that in the text. Um, that isn't one of it. Like. 
which is you know actually rare in the Orthodox community. So like that's that's fascinating too. So I, I I think one of the things about it is Isaac is supposed to be not just like he's not just a he doesn't just seem like a mensch, but he's he's a fairly progressive mensch while still maintaining to the outside very traditional ways. Yeah. Um. And his um, reading habits are also interesting. Like he's not sort of afraid to to encounter like philosophical ideas that are challenging to uh, Jewish thought. So for someone who's so committed to uh, the Mishnah, right? Um, he also reads Nietzsche and um, obviously Spinoza, as we'll talk about, <laughs> right? And right, so, right. Yeah. But, what, but what's fascinating about that to me is again that's an inter-Orthodox Jewish conflict. So part of the Jewish, the Jewish, um, the Orthodox modernist movement, it was like you don't have to forsake secular loaning anymore. Whereas if you aren't in, if you're a Haraldi, you do. You don't, and not just science, like philosophy, everything, everything you know, everything you're supposed to need is supposed to be found in the Torah, the Tanakh, and the Talmud. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So he's sort of, and and of course the narrator is his supplier, right? The narrator owns a bookstore, um, and right. and Isaac owns or buys his books from the narrator, and they have this little correspondence over the years, um, um, all the way up until Isaac's suicide. Which should we talk about, like the the nature of the letter, what what it gets revealed in the letter? Because I I think that's a, a rather shocking. <laughs> no, I mean it's shocking to the it's shocking to the to the unnamed narrator. Until he gets to the point where where he sees Isaac um, Isaac Russell in it with with like the meaning of of Moses, which is th- that reading's fascinating. We need to like talk about that for a second. Yeah. Well, but so the the nature of the suicide is, uh, well, so Steindl asks the narrator if he's ever bought any books on like horticulture or biology or or anything to do with plant life right and right. so and, and as it turns out once he gets access to this letter the suicide letter where he recounts what's happened so Isaac has basically uh, gone off uh, and developed a love affair with uh, a tree nymph <laughs> let's just say right. and, and he, he actually has relations with a tree and uh, and this little 14 year old tree nymph uh woman or girl uh embodies and they have a conversation and there's a there's an affair there and uh and what comes of that is that isaac's soul gets disem like dis uh dis bifurcated from his body right his soul becomes uh, uh is separated from his body and he actually can have a conversation with his soul which is a shriveled old like learned jewish scholar right who's just sitting right. hunched over books right and uh and then isaac uh goes off and won't be taken back by the nymph at this point either because she sees his soul too and, and it's repulsive to her and and then he hangs himself with the prayer shawl from uh from this uh from the soul of the this uh, that that he's kind of expelled himself from, and so this is the the kind of shocking kind of moment uh, that we we realize where his, what his paganism actually looks like, uh, and it is a it's a very strange thing I think to any reader, um, let alone Jewish. Yeah, but what's fascinating about that to me is that it, what it's implied in that is what committed the abomination was his body. Yeah. Now, okay, there's a couple of things with there. So if you're not an or like the the question of souls isn't of itself actually highly debated in Orthodox circles, whether or not you have one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
because of the the insistence if you read the Torah of the like the bodily manifestation of, of, of God and like when you know the physicalness of the resurrection. But there are plenty of Orthodox who do believe in souls. Um, it, it comes up in uh, it's it, it comes up in uh, forget if it's uh, Ramban or or Maimonides. I mean Rem. So not Maimonides or, or Maimonides. Um, anyway, um, I'm not an Orthodox Jew. I've just <laughs> read a lot about that stuff. Um, you know, my my. Uh, well, technically speaking, I'm not really a Jew anyway. But um, <laughs> but. Um, Surprise it, to you, right? <laughs> or, yeah. Um. So it's uh, it's one of those things that that you kind of struggle with when you read this, and um, but what's interesting to me is the insight of the narrator at the end of the story tells when he gets mad at. Uh, Shundal, it's not because she's just rejecting her husband. What she says is pity him and then go back to the tree because he sees the tree. One of the things that he goes over there is he doesn't realize he thinks he's going over to seduce his, you know, uh, son's wife, and that that has a symbolic meaning. It's him trying to re-embrace a Jewishness. Yeah. Like, um. And and by by marrying, like the most Jewish person, right? Because of her her genesis, right? I mean, she's someone who was literally saved, seemingly by God from the Holocaust, right? And and right. right. So exactly, it's not just that she's super Orthodox, but like everything about her is like she was orphaned. Her history is lost to her. Yeah, There's so much heavy symbolism in that, and yet what he tells her is interesting. In the end, he says, "Go back." to the far to the tree and learn to have pity on him and talk to your husband's soul. Yeah. Right. Talk to the Jewish part of your husband so you can have pity on the situation that he was in. Not not the abomination that you that you're caught up in. Like it that you that it's he's telling her like you're not there's something about you where you're not seeing the Jewishness and the loss because you, you see only but the betrayal. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that letter is true, then his soul is out there and you can talk to it and his soul is still Jewish and the body is gone. Yeah. Which is still not from a Jewish perspective. That's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it is bad, but it's, it's like, like it's not, it's more a tragedy than a betrayal if that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have the wooden if you have to separate his soul, but you really don't know. I mean, one of the things about it is also that like there's multiple. It's not like the narrator's worldview is upended either way. So this is something you have to think about. If that letter is not, if if the events of that letter are true, yeah, and not up. Um, the world is much more miraculous than the narrator thinks. Yeah. If the letter is not true, then Isaac is more complicated and their identity are more complicated than he thinks. And either way, he can't go back to the same world. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's totally. Um, oh, I suppose just uh, more than unsettling, right? It, it's it's completely erasing the foundations of everything that they've thought, right? And so, um, at one point, he says in his letter, and I'm never going to find it uh, while I'm talking here, is something about um, Isaac in his letter his accommodates for basically animism within monotheism like so right. like they don't necessarily contradict one another um what's he talking about there well there's a lot going on there i mean there's a lot of you know you know there's a lot of like the alternative um jewish scholarship people who point out that you know jewishness has a plurality to it in the way they talk about angels and the way that gods or other gods are spoken about as subordinate to God. Okay. And, and like the, the fact that the plural God is used as a formal for the true name of God and you don't use the singular and stuff like that. So it, I mean, honestly, it's where the emanation theories of Kabbalah come from. It's also where frankly, Christian Trinitarianism gets justified as going in and reading into that, but that, you know, they're, so the, he's wrestling with like new with new criticism and stuff in there too. That's an implication about it. And his his answer is they're both true. Okay. So he's just saying like, look, you know, like all this secular stuff is true. All this pagan stuff is even true because it emerges from God. But what do we do about that? How do we deal with that? And then he, you know, he he mocks a certain a, a certain civility of the. I mean, this is in the letter but a certain civility of the Jewish spirit. And he was like, look, you know, they have to be told by God physically to liberate themselves because they would wait to be liberated in the future of Zion otherwise forever because it's a servile, you know, and it's just like, and the servileness and the concessions to paganism seem to keep on coming up. And what's interesting is he, de but the, Isaac avoids all the the stuff that happens immediately after when like Aaron does a golden calf and yeah and well that's all well let's like um, hover over that for one second because what Isaac is getting at is that had they been told of this um, the fact that their soul is contained right um, mm -hmm. then there's no sort of motivation for freedom they can live happily in whatever. Um, uh, situation they live in right and so slavery is not a problem so Moses withholds that information from from the Israelites right so that they will leave and he says here um, let me therefore Moses never spoke to them of free souls lest the people do not do God's will and go out from Egypt um, and then I, or the narrator says the man was a genius, right? And so there's actually, it seems like a, uh, like there's something plausible to, with the, and Scheindel even agrees with him on this point. Like there is, he's actually onto something somewhat true. Right. Yeah. Scheindel, Scheindel doesn't, part of what, what bugs her is a betrayal, not even, like, not even the metaphysics, the implication. In fact, she won't let, the you know the 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 secularish author look away from it. She won't let him look away from it. Yeah. Even though she's like, I'm never going to reveal this to the authorities, but I'm revealing it to you. Um. And she you know, like, <laughs> it's funny because she she's aware she he thinks he's coming to like help her and maybe seduce her, and she's like, yeah, you. I mean, she picks up that that's what he thinks. Yeah. If we got him early on, you're not really doing that, like you're really trying to find out about your friend 
and you can't handle the truth, basically. But but then neither of them can really. Like that's like both like one of the the thing the 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 interesting thing about this is this story almost works like a Jewish version of a Flannery O'Connor story. Yeah. Um. I kept thinking that when I was reading this because I'm like, oh, the end here, it's the the ultra-Orthodox Jewish woman who really truly is holy and really truly is wise in some ways but is so spiteful um, that she can't see the pity and the tragedy of the situation. And the secular person who who doesn't really – is really kind of clueless most of the time sees it. Yeah. At the end, but what's interesting about that, um, to me, is that um, it's that intersection that makes all those visions possible. And this is like, in some ways, why this is an apologia for Osnick for what she does, mm-hmm. um, trying to put the Orthodox into the context of this kind of like quasi-pagan, quasi-idolatrous art. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, okay, um, because that's only visible in the contrast there, where they both kind of fail. Um, and he's thinking about the way an O'Connor story works. You see that, except this is not in the context of grace because it's not part of this worldview. It's in the context of of seeing through the law and seeing you know seeing glimpses of God through those tensions. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so, like, I, I read this and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. This is a you know a Jewish O'Connor story, but it doesn't have the grace element of it because that's not part of this there's a there's a real tragedy to what happened yeah um where you know the the insight into what it means to be jewish is interesting and the other thing that's interesting is the spite spite is such a big part of this so what in order to spite the cruelty of of a kind of judaism the the narrator becomes lost to judaism Basically, because his um, his father has no forgiveness and no grace for anything. Yeah. Um, and that leads that leads and and also he's motivated himself out of spite. Like the father is mo- like the 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 absent silent father is motivated to just be the best rabbi because that's what he wants to be. Yeah, it's out of competition. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's not, it's not totally out of like love of God, which is actually itself an int- like an interesting point. Uh, Shandal's problem is, uh, is that she has spite for her husband's betrayal, but also the genius of his vision. Mm. Um, because she's also super perceptive and super learned. Like that, that, that's the other thing. She, this is not just like, that's what she's known for being. Um, so, and the narrator keeps on commenting of what's, what, what is turning him away as the spite, but that's also what ruined his marriage. Okay. So he marries Joan, the Puritan woman. It's not, it's not because she doesn't try to like understand Judaism, although there's, you know, a little bit of that in there. It's that he married her despite his father, really, and she knows it. Yeah. And, like, Ozick's actually very sympathetic to her in a way. Yeah. 
and you get the feeling that maybe like Isaac's just Isaac does apparently the narrator thinks Isaac doesn't like her but won't speak ill of her ever, you know doesn't like call her Shiska or anything like that. I don't know. Do you need to do you need to bleep um, Jewish swear words? Um, well, that's a pretty colloquial one. I don't think I don't think iTunes will catch up to us on that one. So yeah, so um, I didn't even know that was a swear word. I, that was just oh, it, it's so it, it, I know it's a slur, you know, but I didn't realize it was a swear word. Okay, <laughs> it's a slur whose etymology is questionable, but the commonly understood etymology is actually it's a derivation for. From the Hebrew for abomination. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, wow. Okay. So it's a, a um, it doesn't just super mean swear. like <laughs> a, a, a loose um, goy woman, although that's how it's normally employed in yeah. Yiddish. Yeah. It, yeah. It's actually a stronger word. Oh, interesting. Um, and she doesn't get painted as that. You're right. Uh, the no, the and wife she doesn't, doesn't get painted yeah. as that. Her, her reason for being cold to him, I think, I think she knows that she doesn't so much love her. Uh, he doesn't so much love her as hate his father. Yeah. And, um, and, but that's the way that spite is motivating so many of these characters and not love is interesting because the only person who's motivated at love and it leads him astray is Isaac. Mm hmm. Yes. Um, and, and where does the love initiate, though? I guess because it seems to me that he's drawn. This is where the so this story is largely about the division, or the competition, whatever between um, like spirit and flesh, right? Right. Um, and, and so, it seems to me that like learning is like a spiritual activity. So you, the, there's a you know uh, this whatever image of the learned Jewish scholar always hunched over his books all day. Right. And so, and that's what his soul actually looks like, uh, is this old man who, uh, even though Isaac's only 35, um, his soul is an ancient Jewish man with carrying around books all day in a sack. Right. And so, um, and so that seems to me, this is like a, a paradox, I guess, into the story. It's not like he, he saw a tree, and was sexually attracted to a tree. He sought out trees based on things he was learning um, um, through his studies, right? Uh, and so it seems to me the desire was instilled through, like, the Orthodox Jewish soul uh, and whatever, explored through the body later. Uh, am I wrong right, about he this? He was trying to figure out God. He was trying to figure out God in the world as opposed to God from books. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and, and I guess we should say, uh, point out the, the epigraph for this story because it's related to this. Um, sorry, give me one second. It is from the Ethics of the Fathers. Rabbi Jacob said, He who is walking along and studying, but then breaks off to remark, How lovely is that tree? Or how beautiful is that fallow field? Scripture regards such a one as having hurt his own being. Okay, and so and that's the the story that Isaac lives out, right? He he breaks away from his studies to uh, more than admire nature, right? Um, to right. become sexually Im intimate with nature, and and so there's a a way in which uh, I think that's the whole story set up just in that epigraph. And there's so much to that. There, there's so much to that actually. I was thinking about that because the ethics of the fathers is the. Uh, how deep do I want to go into this? Um, the Ethics of the Fathers is is not a foundational text of Judaism, but it is a 
Talmudic tract that supposedly traces a lineage of the rabbinic Jews back to the sages and the sages back to the uh, back to the prophets, mm-hmm. right? It is supposedly the recount of how, like, of the kind of folk wisdom, but also a lineage going back to legitimate rabbinic Judaism from basically Sadduceic Judaism. There's a polemic going on. It's like, look, there was a part of the priesthood that we were kind of excluded from because the priesthood was supposedly Sadduceic um, that we were a secret tradition of, and this is the wisdom thereof. Okay. And one of the things that you, you know, one of the things you have to do is you have to study, study, study. If you get too much into the field, you you can, you hurt your soul by, by trying to understand God in the world. You can't see that. You can only under, understand God as word. Okay. Uh, and, through, and, and through the words which we have provided orally through the lived tradition of our fathers. And remember, like, the Talmud is how we, this all gets right down. But prior to this, supposedly, this is all an oral tradition. Now, now I'm going to take off my, you know, like, any Jewish empathy hat and put on my scholarly hat. That's probably not true. But that's, that is – you know, the oral Torah is supposed to be justified by this, and the, that's why the ethics of the fathers is so important, is it's a reconcession of the ethics that maintained the oral Torah until it could be written down in the Mishnah. Mm-hmm. And the fact it was written down was actually the sign of the degenerating times. Okay. Um, that's interesting. And you're mentioning folklore here, and it makes me think, I um, I have this scholarly book uh, by Sarah Blatcher Cohen uh, called Cynthia Ozick's Comic Art, which I, you know, because I do what I do, I happen to have this on my shelf. Um, and so, um, and she mentioned something in here. Ozick had written a, a book review of Eli Wiesel, something. Um, folklore and legend, are, and this is Ozick's words, folklore and legend are not the same. Folklore dodges reality, legend pursues it. Folklore is a dead end. Legend has a use. Legend teaches. And I, I, I feel like she's conceiving this story then as legend and not folklore, right? right? Um, because this is, for her, I think there's an instructional purpose to this. Um, I, don't, I think that we're supposed to see Isaac Kornfeld as having fallen. I think that this isn't a liberation. This is a, a, a tragedy. Um, and, and he was mis, he was misled kind of. And, and, uh, and I think that's Ozick's intention anyway. Right. Well, and there's lots of, the thing is in the P in the, oh, let's call it by its Jewish name. I'll keep referring it to it in the English title. Um, <laughs> by, uh, by the ethics of the fathers. Um, has a lot of stories like that. Some of the, the rabbis who are conceding, who like the rabbi who, tr- who supposedly trained Paul, is seen as uh, is getting similarly misled. misled and, oh, interesting. And you know, it's kind of a polemic against Christianity, but like that's in there too. But you know, one of the things that I talk a lot about when I talk about Jewish stuff and Christian stuff, because I study both on, on the side, it's one of those things that people like it. It comes up in my conversations with you and not with other people. Yeah. <laughs> How much time of my life I spent studying religion. Um, it, it's, uh, I think the, a lot of these questions get lost on, 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 on non-Jewish readers in ways that like, when they, when people read night, for example, mm-hmm. 
Okay, I just think of that when I was teaching. There, the first chapter of Night strikes everyone as very, very weird. <laughs> like, there's all this stuff about Moshe the Beetle and the Kabbalah, and then and then people losing losing uh, losing faith and what that means. Um, and most people skip that. Don't think that that's important. What they're really interested in is the horror stories of of running from the camps and yeah. Um, so, so why is that in there? That's in there because there's a real Jewish theological problem, which the Shoah is there. And so for Wiesel, I think, like, the first chapter may be the most important chapter. And Moshe the Beetle, who seems so unimportant in the larger scheme of the book, is so important. Um, and similarly in this, there's all this inter-Jewish stuff that you can kind of vaguely pick out if but I don't think if you're not I don't think if you're not aware of what's being debated over in the Jewish community particularly yeah. in the series, that this the the stakes of this story really come through I I think I mean this is to me a feature of great art though um like mm-hmm. when I watch a Tarkovsky film we're going to be talking about uh, another Tarkovsky film maybe today um, but uh, on down the road here and uh, nostalgia for those of you who uh, want to catch up and and get it early uh, like there's so much context that I'm unaware of so a work of art then becomes like a, a an open window that I can climb through and learn something like enter a new kind of world and explore it right and so right. Ozick's work definitely does that it's so detailed from the world she's writing about that it's alienating if you don't have all those details but it's also an invitation for you to look the stuff up and you have Wikipedia on your phone now right <laughs> that's why I just tell my students look it up if you don't know what it is and you're going to learn a lot by reading these works and there's so much to it like she she's also apparently engaged in a whole lot of ancient greek stuff because like the the nymphs are not it's not just your like edith hamilton nymph like there's she knows her stuff she i i read and well in that same book um that i just quoted from um they say that she out ovid's ovid right (laughs) with this and i think that that's totally true yeah Um, like so why Spinoza? Why is Spinoza like the model? Because Spinoza is Spinoza is also seen in Orthodox circles as doing this, as getting too into trying to understand God in the, in the world, and thus becoming either an atheist or a pantheist, and you know needed to be kicked out of the community for heresy. But from Spinoza's point of view, he was just trying to reconcile, as Maimonides had tried to reconcile before him, and Maimonides is, a, you know, in some ways Maimonides is the beginning of modern Orthodox Judaism, not modern Orthodox Judaism in the sense that we're thinking, but yeah. but actually, but he, in some ways he is, because Maimonides also said you couldn't, you didn't have to forsake philosophy, and philosophy for him was Aristotle, yeah. as it was for the Muslims he was around, um, and you didn't have to reflate, re, forsake natural learning that you could you could do this and he's also the first person to systematize the laws as opposed to you just trying to guess them from um <laughs> yeah from i mean the, the the mishnah torah which is his his where like the number the first count of the numbers of jewish laws when you hear the orthodox say they're like 630 something yeah law that's from him 
Yeah. That's from, from Maimonides. Yeah, um, I, if you're, anybody's interested in that, about a year or so ago, I interviewed a guy named Andrew Pesson, uh, who wrote a book called The Jewish God Question, which kind of oh, kind of excerpts a bunch of uh, great Jewish philosophical thinking. Um, and he has a lot about Maimonides in there. So, yeah. You know, and that was true. And Maimonides is also responding to the Islamic tradition, which was having the same debate. The Aristotelian philosophers saw themselves as uh, calpacetic with Islam. There's an entire school of thought on it. I would actually suggest that your listeners go to the history of philosophy without any gaps and listen to the Islamic series. And what happens is basically in the Jewish world, and to some degree, although it is somewhat reconciled, the anti-philosophers win. And in the in the Muslim world, in a hard way, mm-hmm. the anti-philosophers win. And in a Christian world, that's reversed. Mm-hmm. They pick up uh, the, the the writers, the Islamic scholars and the Jewish scholars who are reconciling with philosophy, and they actually flip it. And that's how like Aquinianism is born, with the exception of the fact in the Eastern Christian world, which Tarkovsky comes from, that yeah. never happens. Yeah. Um, also, yeah. But they weren't as hostile to philosophy in the first place. So it's all very yeah. old. I'm glad you brought that up. I felt like when we were preparing for the – because we're planning on recording these – in one sitting and I'm just going to divvy them up Um, I felt like there's a weird correlation (laughs) that I can sense more than uh, point at uh, between these works Uh, yeah I I feel like there's a lot in common I'm not ready to record the Tarkovsky today. I okay. Uh, no, that's but. fine. Good, good. Um, that saves me some time this afternoon. So that that's no problem. Um, but yeah, um, but yeah, it, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of like weird correlations, I think. And so, um, can I like just to show as evidence to um, Ozick's real like knowledge? I mean, she's a very smart person. She's a very educated person, and uh, and so the name that of uh, Isaac's nymph. Is I can't even pronounce it. It's Iripomonia. Um, yeah, it, it, there's a joke about how it's basically unpronounceable, and even using Greek orthography, you yeah. can't really say it. Yeah, and and so she talks about her cousin, um, who is Corey Lilibib, um, who was basically Spinoza's seducer, right? And, and so right. Um, there's a way in uh, which, like, Ozick is just through this kind of passing jokey reference, like tapping into a very deep philosophical problem that Judaism has dealt with since the time of Spinoza in the, in the Renaissance. Right. And so, um, yeah. And, and so you've got like a, a really, um, um, just a, a, a major entryway into a massive conversation into this little 35 page short story. It's fascinating. Um, and so, um, and so, yeah, there was another thing I wanted to say actually, Oh, and I just lost my page like an idiot. Um, um, okay. When they're talking about souls with the nymph here, mm-hmm. she says, sorry, I'm, can you tell how I'm talking slowly to try and find my place again? Um, okay, come on. Ah, so she says to him that so his soul and and when he goes and finds it, she'll see he'll see this uh, is repulsive to her, who's this like free spirit of nature, basically. Right. And um, she's like blue skinned. And um, and I can't imagine what we could do with CGI if we were to do a a movie version of this. Um, You couldn't show a movie version. That's true. (laughs) 
no rating system could accommodate it. <laughs> That's true. Um, I mean, she's blue skinned and like, but extremely sexual. And her like, her 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 lower half is more obviously human. Yeah. Yes. Um, and she's fourteen, and yeah, and it's very creepy, right? And so, right. Um, and so nothing else. You who I thought earned for the um, excuse me, this is what she's saying to Isaac. Nothing else. You who I thought yearned for Earth. You, an immortal, free, and caring only to be bound to the law. So that's what she sees when she sees his soul. Is this uh, is this a kind of repugnant uh, human uh, soul that is um, attached to the law, right? And then when he has a conversation with his soul, um, the soul says, The sound of the law, he says, is more beautiful than the crickets. The smell of the law is more radiant than the moss. The taste of the law exceeds clear water, right? And so the soul is basically telling him that uh, beings that don't really exist lie, right? (laughs) Because they don't have bodies. And something about having bodies makes us more truthful. And so that's the moment he sort of realizes his folly. And then he grabs the prayer shawl, tries to call back the nymph, and she won't come back, and he hangs himself in the tree. Um, And so uh, I, I feel like there's something fascinatingly well, theological there that, that owes well, the bifurcation of soul and body makes both impossible. Okay. Okay. Like, Say more. This is the, the, okay. Now this is in the Jewish polemics against Platonism and Christianity, even though Judaism is kind of highly platonic. Um, that the, the, the love of just the soul is incomplete. It's not a full part of God. Like God is embodied. So there's something about like some, or some like, um, some Antiochian Orthodox thinkers make a big deal out of how embodied Jesus is. I mean, this is also true in a lot. But one of the things about about creation from the Jewish perspective is that it is embodied and it is like God. Yes. Um, and and so when you when you split that apart into the into the soul and to the body. You you effect, you effectively killed both. Okay, that's um, interesting. And so, there's something in Orthodox Judaism that just doesn't allow for this event to even be happening. There is no such thing as pulling your soul right, out of your and, body. And that's one. Of, and one of the things the author keeps on pointing out to to his Christian friend is like, "Oh, we're Puritans in public." Yeah. Because. But we're very like, but ultimately we're very embodied people. It's just not for it's not for the world to see. Yeah, yeah. Where, where when you guys make the separation, it's across the board. Yeah, like he call he says, doesn't he use the term? It's between the conjugal sheets or something like that. Um, right. Yeah, which is a great line actually. Um, yeah, and so it's actually for Christian listeners, like we're getting on like like approaching forms of uh, Gnosticism here uh, with uh, with the idea that, you know, Jesus was not really an embodied person, right? He was um, strictly this spirit of light, right? And that kind of thing. Well, yeah, I mean, to me, I'm going to say something that to your Christian listeners is going to sound heretical, but I think they should hear it. Okay. From the Jewish perspective, or from even like an Orthodox Christian perspective in some ways, there's a dialogue between the between the pagan world and the 
and the Jewish world happen. You know, the Greek, the, the Greek, the Greek. What is it? Athens or Jerusalem, right? Yeah. And there's a dialogue between the two. And the problem for for a lot of Jews is Christians can't really decide what side they're on. Oh, that's interesting. <laughs> um, and like, so for example. Um, there are debates over whether or not Christians were Noahides, and ultimately most Jews think Christians are Noahides, so that means they can, you know, be part of the world to come, et cetera, and so forth. But the reason the reasons why they weren't sure is one, you is your tripartite guide idolatrous, and two, um, you, you know, are you pagans basically? Mm -hmm. And two, like your doctrines of souls, like you, it's a question. It, is questionable how much you guys believe in the embodiedness of of creation. Um, all the self-abnegation and Christianity and all that seems to indicate that maybe you don't. But it is such a huge part of of Christian theology that Jesus is embodied and fully human. Yeah. Um, and that debate does seem to be tied into, and this is me now getting taking off again Jewish hat putting on scholarly hat. The debate seems to get into how much you think Christianity is actually not the really aberrant Abrahamic faith. Um, if if you go Gnostic, it really is. Mm -hmm. um, but there is a Gnostic strain in even – there's a Gnostic – I know this is – from an outside perspective, particularly in the Gospel of John and the letters of Paul – there is something where the Gnostic perspective is only like taking something in Christianity and, and amping it up a notch. Yeah. Um, I mean, I actually do think that maybe Harold Bloom is totally secular. Was like talked about one of the ironies of a fundamentalist Protestantism is how weirdly Gnostic it is. Hmm. Um, how much it is just about belief and election. Yeah. Um, well, and, and when you can see it in the disregard for the material world, right? And it's like the world the, to say something like the world is not my home is is to kind of you know use Gnostic language, right? Um, right. And, yeah. And no, I, I think that that's uh, I think there's you're totally onto something like that. I mean, and the Orthodox go so far as think like the the entire like. Um, Western Christian like justification by faith and all that is itself Gnostic. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, uh, that's God's problem, not yours. Yeah. God loves you. Have faith. You don't need justification. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there's a whole lot of theological questions tied up in this and I don't think people who don't have these, these backgrounds in Judaism and in non-Western Christianity really get all that's at stake. Yeah. Um, and, and to be fair, like Judaism and non-Western Christianity come to vastly different conclusions about these questions, and not they're not the same. But I don't. Sometimes I think like post-Aquinas, like like Western Christians just don't get what everybody else is talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Including Muslims and Jews, so it's just like, like wait, huh? <laughs> like, yeah. No, which is another, I mean, case to be made for reading something like this because it's going to introduce you to challenging ideas. And ultimately, I do think Ozick is um, advocating staying within the law. I think that the the ending of the story, to me, is is turns out to be, oh, I don't want to say that it's like a, 
I don't I don't want to say that it's like a fairy tale with a moral to the story, right? But but I do think that that we're supposed to see Isaac as having made some sort of fundamental mistake in his decision um, to uh, um, to give up his Jewish soul for um, strictly the pleasures of the body, right? And, and, right, right. Yeah, and and I think you could see it even down to where this this is set. I mean, it's set outside of basically a sewage plant, right? And so um, it's it's like the waste of society is is where all these trees are growing and where these nymphs are living from. And so it's it's got this kind of abject quality to it, if you want to use psychoanalytic terms. Um, and then at the end of the story, the uh, narrator states, uh, uh, whereupon I remembered her earlier words and dropped three green house plants down the toilet. After a journey of some miles through conduits, they, they straightway entered Trillum's Inlet, where they decayed amid the civic excrement. So he's basically sending more organic material <laughs> down to where Isaac's uh, body is now, right? And so, uh, yeah, I think that there's something, um, like, uh, I think that there's something negative we're supposed to take away from Isaac Kornfeld's We're also supposed to take away a point of view that the ultra-Orthodox Jewish response that has no pity and doesn't it isn't willing to wrestle with the questions that led Isaac there in the first place is also wrong. True. True. Like, so you get the feeling again, like at a Flannery O'Connor story that like maybe this has caused the narrator to go back to a certain sense of Jewishness, but he cannot embrace Shindel or his father. That still is not the kind of Jew he's going to be. Yeah. Yeah, that's well, interesting. Um, and yeah, that's very interesting. That's why, also why Ozick doesn't quit writing. Yes. No, not even close. <laughs> or, or give up studying the ancient world like and, and all this pagan stuff because the, the tension between that for Ozick, I think, is where the real the real questions of why the law exists in the first place is there. If you cannot look at that, you don't really know what you have and what you don't have. Yeah. Like, you know, I, I it, it may be a somewhat superficial answer, but I'm trying to put myself in what and what Ozick is what's at stake for Ozick because Ozick is not saying like particularly if you read the rest of this book. Um, Ozick is not saying that the ultra-Orthodox perspective is completely right, but that you shouldn't reject the law. You shouldn't reject what it means to be a Jew. Yeah. There's, um, a, there's another story of hers that I have my students read from time to time called Bloodshed, um, uh, which is very fascinating as well. Now, this one I think is legitimately gets into magical realism, but it's about a, um, an atheist Jew who visits a Hasidic community in upstate yeah. New York, um, kind of expect hoping to find levitating, uh, rabbis. Right. And, uh, and he's looking for some sort of magic in the world. Right. And, mm -hmm. and it, it's a, it's a fascinating story, actually. It's very complicated and difficult, but, um, but it, it's fascinating. I would also maybe suggest we talk about, you know, for your Christian listeners, to you get some more sense of what's at stake. The very next story in this original collection. Oh, envy. Envy or Yiddish, uh, Yiddish in America, which is a lot of people consider the most important story by her on on literature and Jewish culture, like written. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, it's been a while, about a decade since I've read that, but I do remember. I knew know what you're talking about, and I would be happy to uh, do a follow up with you at some point. Yeah, um, that one might be interesting to talk about. Yeah, that's a longer story, but yeah, I could definitely um, see myself doing it. Can I say two more things? Um, huh? There, there's one uh, moment when at the near the beginning of the story, when the narrator recounts on the day of his funeral, the president of his college was criticized for having commented that although a suicide could not be buried in consecrated earth earth whatever earth enclosed isaac cornfield was ipso facto consecrated um th- i think that's meant to be a bit of a joke but i actually think it's got a lot of layers of deep philosophical problem in it as well or, or theological uh i guess problems with it as well and a very interesting conversation to be had out of that um and another little joke that i just had i came across as i was looking for that line um torah isn't a spade Isaac said, <laughs> right? And so the, the, the idea, um, he adds the uh, sort of uh, horticulture uh, perspective into that as well. So uh, any, uh, any last thoughts on, uh, on the pagan rabbi? I think this is a kind of story you can go back to over and over and over again. I'm surprised it's not more read. Um, I knew about Ozick, but this is not a story that, that I had read. Um, I had read Envy, which is, I think, more taught. Yeah. Um, this is available in print, but only in her collected works. This book, you have to buy a old, dusty 70s, maybe. I think there might be some 80s paperbacks available, but... Yeah. Um, and they're not super expensive because people don't remember it. <laughs> and Ozick is definitely worth reading. She's very, very interesting and a brilliant writer. I mean, just the imagination behind the stories are is enough, but the, yeah, the intellect behind it. James Joyce, I wonder if it's just my Southern O'Connorness coming out that yeah. I'm like, oh, she reminds me of O'Connor, but she does. Well, like, she. when you said that, it just sparked in me. I think someday I should teach a class on pairing up Ozick and O'Connor and talking theology uh, through these. Uh, I feel like that would be yeah, a fantastic like, class. What, 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 what is, I mean, you get a female perspective on Catholicism and a female perspective on, on Orthodox Judaism that is skeptical, but faithful in both cases. Yeah. Um, and how different and similar they look like the similarities are interesting, but the differences are also interesting. Like, 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 there isn't a flash of redemption for Isaac. This is a tragedy, but it's a tragedy that happened for. I think uh, Ozick saying, "Yeah, something went wrong," but the the reason why it's a tragedy and not a betrayal is the question that led Isaac there was a legitimately spiritual question that should have been asked. Yes, yes, like yes, and that that's a tension that there isn't a good answer for. Yeah, it's it's one of those stories where the pursuit. Of, I mean, I, going back to Philip Roth's um, conversion of the Jews. I don't know if you've ever read that story. I taught Roth last mm-hmm. semester. I mean, it's about a little boy who takes God so seriously from within his Jewish faith that he believes it's possible that he could have made Mary get pregnant without having intercourse, right? And so, like the the the, hypocr- the apostasy comes out of the most out of the most sincere person, right? It's and in fact, it is the sincerity that causes the apostasy, and uh, and, and I think a similar thing is going on here. Yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, part of the things that I think um, for me studying Orthodoxy, uh, Orthodox Christianity, and Orthodox Judaism um, has led me to see 
the, the division there is from a real spiritual question that emerged at the end of the Roman Empire. Mm-hmm. And uh, and in, in some ways, from my perspective, which and this is this is a more secular one, that Christianity, rabbinic Judaism are the children of a spiritual of a spiritual and political crisis that we no longer remember. Mm. And like the destruction of the temple and the and the the end of the ancient world pre the Roman Republic, um, for the for the Near East is is underlying this in some fundamental way, and it's a world that we have lost. And um, I do think, on interestingly, um, the tensions between Christianity and Judaism get to what is lost, and I. I have been fascinated with not just this, like, you know, the Jewishness of Jesus or the – because I'm actually also fascinated by the paganness of of Jesus, which I think even if you're a faithful Christian, you do have to deal with. Um, but um, the, uh, the lost world of the Bible in a real sense of only – like, there's a series of Christian scholarly, like, quasi-scholarly popular books that – I think talk about the lost world of such and such and such and such, but that, that there is a realness to that question. Mm-hmm. That that world that that has given us both religions, we we are commentating on a on a on a crisis we don't remember, mm-hmm. and we don't truly know. Yeah. Um. And like I think there's if I was a Christian that there's a certain alienness to that that I would wrestle with. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably why there's all this, you know, like neo-orthodoxy stuff, and like I'm both in the like neo-orthodox woo-woo postmodern stuff, you know, ten years ago, and also like a real turn of a lot of people to orthodox Christianity, maybe in insincere ways, um, yeah. that I think people need to kind of struggle with because they're they're tr- they they're like tripping around a question that they don't even know they're tripping around, um, and frankly, the world is moving on. Yeah. My friend Tony Dragani, who was on a show about Eastern Catholicism here, um, calls them the Uber Docs, right? <laughs> There's yeah. A, and yeah. The Uber Docs and the Hyper Docs. Yeah. 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 And, uh, numbers, so. <laughs> and honestly, I guess that's a transition um, into maybe another segment because I do feel like. Uh, we're in the midst of a spirit. I think looking back, we will have seen that we are in the midst of a spiritual crisis right now. Um, and I think Corona is uh, uh, maybe making that come to the foreground and maybe that could be a transition into the other thing you want to talk about. Yeah. Well, the other thing I want to talk about is a lot more vague. Um, can we, can I take a break real quick? Yeah. Let's take a break. Uh, okay. Okay. Give me a second. 